Welcome to this edition of Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford, on the Liberty and Justice Network, Radio LJN. This is Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis, in the second part of our program, part two of my interview with Earl Balfour, longtime May Day volunteer, labor activist, and communist, well-known to many in Minneapolis. He died in 2018, my interview from 2017. But first, the news. CARE 11 News says COVID-19 has become Minnesota's leading cause of death as of November 30th. The article published... December 8th says, quote, analysis of Centers for Disease Control data shows coronavirus deaths have surpassed cancer and heart disease, undercutting arguments by COVID skeptics, end quote. In an article by Keeley Mullen for Socialist Alternative entitled, From the Lab to Your Upper Arm Challenges Ahead for the COVID Vaccine, is written, quote, it would seem to most that we've already overcome the biggest challenges in vaccine development, making a hypersensitive mRNA vaccine that after being jacked injected into muscle cells tricks the body into making a protein piece similar to that found on the outside of the COVID virus, therefore triggering the body's immune response to something that looks like COVID but isn't, and immunizing us to a future COVID infection, end quote. Unfortunately, as socialists, we know this isn't the case, and the article goes on to say, quote, sadly, because there is no coherent and centrally driven plan to carry out mass immunization, the biggest challenges may still be to come, end quote. Ultimately, it says while billions were invested in creating vaccines, so far the necessary investment and planning has not been done to scale up and distribute the vaccine as, as is necessary. And working people will remain at the mercy of private entities like shipping companies, airlines, and medical supply companies. If investment in the original SARS vaccine program had continued, we could have already been starting from a much higher level, it says, in developing the vaccine to start with. But unfortunately, as the article goes on to say, much of the process will still be left to the so-called, quote, invisible hand of the market, end quote. An article on Liberation News from December 7th outlines the, quote, heavily armed raid, end quote, on the home of Florida data scientist Rebecca Jones. The article says that, quote, Jones was fired earlier this year from her position as a data scientist with the Florida Department of Health, where she was among the early architects of the state's COVID-19 data portal, end quote. The article says that Jones says she was fired when she refused to change COVID-19 dashboard numbers for officials before Florida began reopening. The article also says this raid will further erode trust in government and public health officials' ability to respond to the pandemic and quotes a public health data analyst, Saul Kanowitz, as saying, quote, the interests of the capitalist class have prevented the implementation of a comprehensive program to guarantee the health and well-being of the working class and the people of this country. World Socialist website on 12.9 says, 
quote, the demand by the political and media establishment that society must prioritize the economy over the preservation of human life implies that mass death is essentially necessary and unavoidable, end quote. This in an article entitled The Pandemic and the Normalization of Death. On itsgoingdown.org, December 9th, is an article that reads, quote, On Tuesday morning, Portland community members successfully repelled heavily armed and militarized Multnomah County sheriffs, backed by Portland police officers, who were attempting to evict the Afro-Indigenous Kinney family, who has lived in the Red House on Mississippi in North Portland neighborhood for 65 years, end quote. The community members sent the police packing and then took down a fence erected by the police instead setting up their own barricades and mobilizing to defend the space. And December 6th, on solidarity from the Executive Bureau of the Fourth International, comes a statement entitled, quote, Trump's defeat interrupts momentum of authoritarian right worldwide, end quote. A number of points highlight a defeat of Trump's project, his continued failure to acknowledge defeat but without a plan, and the continued trend of new forms of authoritarianism. While the document states Trump's defeat is, quote, a breath of fresh air, end quote, Biden represents the, quote, business as usual of American democracy, end quote. But the statement says mass social movements in other parts of the globe on many issues, from feminism to environmentalism, should give us hope. The statement, which was adopted on November 30th, 2020, ends, quote, we underline the failure of all capitalist governments to adequately respond to the pandemic. They're increasing recourse to conspiracy theories, reactionary ideology, and authoritarianism. It is thus urgent need to fight for anti-capitalist structural measure, expropriation of banks, big pharma, energy, and exceptional taxation on the rich and the big corporations, and for a global alternative based on social, economic, gender, and ecological justice, end quote. Socialist Action has an article by Jeff Macker on December 7th, whose title says it all, quote, election charade ends, U.S. ruling class wins again, end quote. You can check more of that article out over on socialistaction.org, and now we go to a musical break before we go to part two of our interview with Earl Balfour. The music we're going to hear right now translates from the Yiddish as The Oath was written by S. Ansky in 1902. The song became the anthem of the Socialist General Jewish Labor Bund in the early 1900s. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the source of the melody is unknown, but the song is still sung today. Schwester von Arbeit und Not, alle vor seinen Zeit und spreit zusammen, zusammen, wie von sie es gerät. Sie flattert von Zahren, von Blut ist sie reut. A schwuhe, a schwuhe, euch flebet und deut. Brüder und Schwester von Arbeit und Alle was seinen zu seid und zu spreit zusammen, zusammen, die von sie's gerät, sie flattert von Zahren, vom Blut ist sie reut, a schwuhe, a schwuhe, euch leben und teut. Schwören, 
Balfour died in 2018. The year before, I spoke to him at his home. Here, I present the second part of our interview, which you will hear uninterrupted. I asked Earl to fill in some of the details from the history he outlined in part one, tell me some of the high points, and speculate a bit on what the future holds for all of us. Being a participant, an active participant, in the anti-war movement, in its various front groups, <coughs> give you a sense of um, community. It provided your social life. It filled out this void that you, that you had. You were just working at your job, raising your kids and your family, and so forth. So it gave you sort of a purpose in life, and you learned a lot. You were participating in these momentous events of half a million people in Washington, you know, getting tear gas and running through the fucking streets, <laughs> going crazy. And uh, I think probably uh, in later years, <coughs> because I was older and not a student, I always got shuttled. The SWP used me as sort of a goon and as a trade union guy. Because we knew that the, uh, the kids have no upper body strength, so we could push them around pretty easy, you know. But then, uh, Eventually, I got bounced out of there when they made their turn into poly vanguardism. And uh, ended up, as I say, at Mayday. And, uh, but then again, it went through a lot of lean years after the, after the anti-war movement collapsed. There was an attempt to reorganize things called the New American Movement, which was doomed to disaster because that was a uh, multi-purpose, multi-question multi front with no real party behind it. So I ended up with, uh, bickering. So it was just the doldrums for a long time. And uh, so I, I became involved in the labor movement and participating in various strikes and so forth and so on. And um, which was kind of fulfilling. Iowa pork, uh, uh, various strikes. And that was, uh, I guess, momentous. The Hormel strike was a turning point for me for two reasons. I have a son who's now a UAW organizer. And um, 
he did nothing to his own man, you know, rant and rave about, you know, this crackpot scheme about class war and all that shit. You know, it was all a punk. What are you talking about that? So I used to take him out of school and bring him down to the picket lines in Austin. His teacher was kind of sympathetic so that he could go, I, he, he could go with me to the, to the picket lines and so forth, providing he gave a report when he got back. That was his cover. He's doing research or something. So that worked out well for both of us. But in the meantime, you meet these characters. Amazing characters. Historic characters. People you could never dream of meeting. Trotsky's bodyguard. You know, sit down and have dinner with Trotsky's bodyguard. You know, think about that for a minute. And uh, the guys that led the 34th strike when I first came around the SWP, they were still around. Uh, the Dunn brothers and so forth. And you get to talk to these guys, and you, and you get this continuity of, of, uh, of struggle. And it's really, really reinforcing your ideals, I think, anyway. But it was a great time, and I wouldn't trade a minute of it for anything. Just uh, some of the things I did, some of the people I met, it was just fantastic. And you, you have the same opportunity, which is more power to you. Things are going to get active, and they're going to be involved in the shit you never dreamed possible. You're going to be scratching your head saying, what the Christ am I doing here, you know? <laughs> what am I, an idiot? <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the, the joy of it all. The joy of it all, making struggling for social change. You get beat up, you get arrested, so what? Life goes on. I have a, I have a small back position. That most of the people that vote, probably 80% of the people that vote, think they're going to rise from the dead. Now, if you can sell somebody that line of shit, you can sell them anything. You know what I mean? Mm. And then this last election sort of proves that. So, hence the need for the Vanguard Party, which hopefully will materialize one of these days. Now, it's making certain rumblings here and there, but it hasn't presented itself in a tangible form, although people are trying. And that's good. They, uh, it's going to be an exciting period the next 10 years or so. And I, I won't be around to see it, but uh, you'll have my best wishes. <laughs> we used to have a large demonstration every two years. We couldn't have one on the election year because the CP pulled out its forces to work for the Democratic Party. And they were an integral part of the anti-war movement because they had the contacts and the base and so forth and so on. So you had a lull. Every four years, you, you sort of didn't do anything to speak of. And then after the election was over, then you realize you've been duped again and start your activities. So, But these, these conferences we used to go to, organized, usually in Cleveland, anti-war conferences, it would attract two, three, four hundred people from various campuses and other, other sorts of organizations. And we used to charter buses to go there from Minneapolis. Now, what was amazing in these trips was you got this bus full of kids, young people that had no idea what they were getting into, except they were against the war. And they get to this conference, and they're sitting down, and there's all these left groups are there, vocal left groups, literature tables, and pretty soon they're listening to people shout at each other about Mao says, Lenin says, Marx, and they're saying, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Their heads are really, you know. <laughs> what have I gotten into here? And, uh, so they hear this for two or three days before the conference, and then uh, on the way back on the bus, 
we hammer on these kids and try to bring them into our front groups, into the uh, Young Soldiers Alliance, as, uh, as more politically active than just being anti-war. Give them some sort of political reason to be so. So that was a, that was a lot of fun. We used to have some big... Uh, I remember there'd be fights. Fights out in the... Uh, Mark Rudd and the SDS would try to take over the stage. These battles with chair legs and brass knuckles and shit. <laughs> it was crazy for a while, but it was, you know, looking back on it, it was part of your education. I remember once we had a conference in uh, Chicago, and I think it was PL was there. And, uh, and they went around the neighborhood and said, there's, there's going to be free food. It was in a poor neighborhood at this conference. So, of course, free food at 5 o'clock. So, all, we look out and there's all this crowd gathering. What the fuck is this? Where's the Holy shit, we've been set up here. So, so Fred Halstead has these two big trays of fucking donuts. And he wades into the crowd, leads them away like lemmings. You know, it was amazing. But, you know, shit like that happens. And it's, it's really remarkable resourcefulness that people have. That's, that's the joy of it, was almost anything seemed possible. I know, that is cool. Christ. Because the West Bank, you know, Cedar Avenue, there was a drugstore at Ristner's, and you could buy any drug there known to man, you know, on the street. <laughs> People with card tables selling candles and save the whales and all <laughs> kinds of shit, and uh, having rent parties. But that was quite a social scene in and of itself. There was a park there. Right across from, uh, right next to the high rise there. And there was a band box there. So you walked across the street to the liquor store and you got a jug of wine. You went over and you sat down in this little park and bands would play on the house Sunday afternoon. And just sit there and shoot this shit and get loaded. And that, was, that was a whole different atmosphere. You know, you weren't worried about getting in fights or anything. A lot of fun. But there was a, a lot of comrades went through there. And turn up every now and then, years later, running for mayor and some ecology expert or some goddamn thing. So it was good training for a lot of people. We presented ourselves as the best builders of the anti-war movement. If you want to become involved in the asset, this is the organization that's going to do it. We have resources all over the country and we have the contacts and so forth. We can actually do it. So. That's an attraction because people don't want to join. Well, some people want to join two-man groups. But <coughs> so you, you could produce from your rhetoric. You can organize conferences. You can get endorsements. You can raise money. And all that, people are impressed by that. They know what the hell they're doing. I mean, they figure out after a while, demonstrations just don't happen. Somebody's behind it. Did a lot of goddamn work on it. And then pretty soon, they can be one of those people that are actually organizing the thing. And it's empowering to them. They learn how to write a leaflet, what to say, what not to say, how many words to use, what pictures, and so forth. So that all this educational activity goes on. It's kind of distressing today. You can have an anti-Trump demonstration of 5,000. You can have an anti-war demonstration of 200. Something's wrong there. How to break that up is, is, a, is the question, I think. How are we going to transfer these people into being marginally anti-capitalist or, or against the war or something?
because the war goes on relentlessly. People, hundreds of thousands of people have been dying just in the Mediterranean as a result of that crackpot Libyan experiment. And um, <coughs> trying to mobilize those people is difficult. Now, the encouraging thing was the first Black Lives Matter march when, what, six, eight thousand people turned out. Holy shit, who the are these people? You know, they, usually, they usually left crackpots, you know, selling their goddamn paper. <laughs> they were streaming by goddamn Cedar Avenue and standing out there in the plaza, just blown away, saying, holy shit, things have, things have taken a turn here. But uh, I think Black Lives Matter has kind of petered out. But, um, it's encouraging to see people take to the streets. They haven't done that in years, fucking years. And uh, now it's a whole new ballgame. of Socialist News and Views with host Nick Schillingford on the Liberty and Justice Network, Radio LJN.